Well, the Avengers wanted peace in our time. And in order to have peace in our time, Tony Stark, also known as Iron Man, thought he needed to create a shield around planet Earth to protect planet Earth from outside invaders. And to that end, he created Ultron. Ultron, highly, a highly powerful form of artificial intelligence. Now, of course, Ultron ultimately turned on them, turned against the Avengers and humanity. And what's not realistic about this is that Tony Stark didn't see that coming. How did he not foresee that the artificial intelligence would turn against humanity? Had he not seen any science fiction movies ever? Anyways, Ultron had some ideas of his own and believed that in order to achieve peace on Earth, he not only had to eradicate the Avengers, but all of humanity. That was the way to achieve peace on Earth, and because Ultron believed that the biggest threat to peace on Earth was people. And he wasn't wrong about that, really. I mean, but his solution just wasn't great. But peace on Earth, in his perspective, involved remo removing humanity. Well, a common greeting among Jewish people is shalom. And other variations of that include shalom aleichem, which is a way of saying peace unto you, or shalom ma shalomka, which is another way of saying like, hello, how are you? But it literally means, what is the state of your peace? One Jewish rabbi writes, shalom has a host of meanings. Some denote external circumstances, others internal feelings or state of mind. Packed into shalom are concepts like wholeness, peace, security, tranquility, completeness, contentment, safety, and well-being. Merely to stop fighting or to suspend strife is not shalom as Jews understand it. Dynamic, positive, and restorative action is required. Thus, when the state of Israel speaks shalom with all her neighbors... She does not mean a ceasefire, but rather a constructive and meaningful peace for all the peoples in the Middle East. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit based on Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We who are followers of Jesus Christ have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who indwells us desires to produce in us Christ-like qualities and virtues in increasing measure. Galatians 5, and 23 is not meant to give us an exhaustive list of all the virtues that the Spirit desires to produce in us, but it does give us a good picture of what it looks like to be growing in spiritual maturity. We read, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such things, there is no law. Today, the peace of the fruit that we are considering is peace. Now, when we read about peace in the scriptures, we see that there are a few different ways to think about peace. We see that the scriptures discuss peace with God. 
peace within our own hearts and minds, as well as peace with others. I think understanding all three of these and how they relate to one another will help us to prayerfully grow in peace. One thing that I think is hard for us to imagine is that when God created Adam and Eve, they enjoyed perfect peace in the Garden of Eden as they lived with God. There was no conflict. There was no disorder, no anxiety, no fear. Everything was in perfect harmony. I try to imagine what that would be like. I imagine what it would be like to maybe experience that for one day and then go back to our lives as we know them now. How hard would that be to experience what they experienced in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world and then return to our lives here and now as we know them? I think it would change our perspective on our lives here and now. I think it would give us a deep sense of longing for our future with Christ and his kingdom. I think when Paul wrote in Philippians to depart and be with Christ is far better, would resonate with us more powerfully if we had experienced that. Well, Adam and Eve had it, and they lost it. And they enjoyed perfect peace until they disobeyed God. And sadly, when they sinned against God by disobeying his good command, peace was lost. Whereas they enjoyed fellowship with God, they experienced enmity with God. Whereas they had peace with one another, their marriage became riddled with conflict. Whereas they enjoyed harmony with all creation, their lives became full of strife, toil, and hardship. And it wasn't long before the peace that was lost led to the first murder. In Genesis 4, 8, and 9, we read, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Can you imagine how it grieved the heart of the Lord to see one brother murder another and then begrudgingly say, Am I my brother's keeper? His good creation was corrupted by sin, and peace was replaced by enmity, conflict, strife, chaos, and murder. And things only seem to get worse. By the time we get to Noah in Genesis 6, 11, and 12, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God looked upon the earth which was filled with violence and all people had corrupted his good creation. And therefore God determined to bring about judgment. God judged the inhabitants of the earth through the flood. In the midst of his judgment he brought about salvation. He saved Noah and his family but judged the rest of the earth as the people of the earth were destroyed from the earth. Yet, even after the flood, even after there was a fresh start with Noah and his family, things did not get better. 
The problem persisted generation after generation, even after the Lord redeemed a people for himself and gave them good commands to enjoy life with him, they rebelled against him. Thousands of years after the flood, the Lord indicted his own people in Isaiah 48, 18, where he said, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. The obvious implication is that if they would have obeyed the Lord's commandments, if they would have lived in right relationship with him, they would have enjoyed peace. But as they disobeyed his commandments, they did not know peace. We all know that the problem persists today. Our world is full of conflict and strife. We see it all around us. If you pay any attention to the news, you will read about conflict between nations, conflict within nations, and even conflict within communities. And it goes even deeper than that. Many of us have been personally impacted by conflict among family and friends. And so in a world that is full of conflict and strife, in a world where we have been painfully impacted by the realities of conflict and strife, how do we find peace? How do we live at peace? Although we may feel overwhelmed at times by the conflict, the amount of conflict in the world around us and in our own personal lives, there is hope for us. And our hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that even though the peace was lost due to our rebellion against God, God in his loving kindness and mercy had a plan to restore peace. God's plan to restore peace came at a great cost. And what we see in the gospel is that it came at a great cost to himself. In the Old Testament, we see how the Lord used the prophet Isaiah to foretell how the Lord would restore peace at great cost to himself. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Isaiah chapter 52. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, and I'm going to read through to the end of chapter 53. So that's Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, to the end of 53. Here's what we read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see him be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall, and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This prophecy is often referred to as the suffering servant. Of course, simply by reading the words of this prophecy, we can see that it was fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. But not only are we able to see this, Jesus said so himself. In Luke chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So he said, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quoted from Isaiah 53. So Jesus was saying that this prophecy of this servant who suffered is fulfilled in him. Jesus came into the world as the fulfillment of the servant described in these verses. And there is so much that can be said and unpacked in the words of this prophecy. But I want to call our attention to a few things. First, see how the passage describes humanity in verse 6. We read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, it's not just that Adam and Eve turned to their own way. It's not just that Adam and Eve said, We are going to disobey God's command and do what's right in our own eyes. It's that every single one of us has done the same thing. Every single one of us has gone our own way. Every single one of us has said, we are going to do what's right in our eyes rather than fully submitting ourselves to the Lord, our God and King. We have all gone astray. The servant, however, was different. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant, unlike us, was innocent. He was the only one who was not deserving of punishment. Yet what happened to the innocent servant? He suffered greatly and he suffered for a purpose. He suffered for our sake. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. And on him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. He was pierced. He was punished. He was afflicted and oppressed in order to bring us peace. When Jesus came into the world, he came as the servant who suffered for our sake, who took the chastisement or the punishment 
for our sins. And again, Jesus said so himself. The night before he was crucified, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take it. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, speaking of his death upon the cross, where his body was broken and where his blood was shed, said he was going to do so for the forgiveness of our sins. For our iniquities. He suffered for our sake. And what we see in the book of Galatians is that God applies the work of Christ to us through faith. In Galatians 2.16 we read, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law no one will be justified. No one will be made right with God through obeying the law because we will all fall short. None of us will be able to obey the law and earn a right standing with God. But we are able to have a right standing with God, be made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ that his righteousness is counted to us. It is credited to us. So it is by faith that the work of Christ is applied to our lives. So what does this have to do with peace? Well, Paul made the connection for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we also rejoice in god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received reconciliation because of our sin we have made ourselves enemies with god we have rejected him as our king we have rebelled against his good commands we have turned away from his kingdom we have made ourselves enemies with god and the last person you want to make an enemy is the one true living god and we have all done this 
Therefore, what we need to understand is that there is no peace that is more important than peace with God. The unbelievably good news of the gospel is that God has made the way for us to have peace with him and be fully reconciled even while we were his enemies. He didn't wait for us to surrender. He didn't wait for us to come crawling back to him on our hands and knees. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act and to get it together to make ourselves good enough and worthy. He reconciled us while we were his enemies. He is the one who has restored our peace. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And because we are saved by faith, we have peace with God. And that peace with God is unshakable because God is the one who has brought it about. God is the one who has done this for us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And now those who have been justified by faith have peace with God. And this is a huge relief that provides us with wonderful freedom and security. You see, our biggest problem is that we don't have peace with God because of our sin and rebellion. That is our biggest problem by far. We have lots of problems in this life. We have many problems and troubles, but there is no problem bigger than the reality that apart from Christ, we are enemies with God. Yet God has resolved that problem for us at great cost to himself. God has taken care of our biggest problem by far by reconciling us to himself in Christ Jesus, restoring peace with him. Christopher Wright says, when we put our trust in Jesus, who died for our sins, then we know that we come into a relationship with God which gives us peace. Peace with God means peace of heart and conscience, the absence of guilt and fear, we no longer need to be anxious about God's verdict on the last day. In Christ, we are declared to be among the righteous, those who belong to God's family. And this is all because of God's grace. That is a wonderful thing and is perhaps a bit closer to the meaning of peace as the fruit of the Spirit. For unless we are at peace with God through faith, the Spirit of God is not work in our lives. But once our relationship with God is settled, then the Spirit of God pours his new life into our hearts, into our lives, and that life of God begins to bear fruit. If you are not a Christian, then our greatest hope, our greatest desire, our prayer for you is that you will know peace with God. That you will understand that you can have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is guilty. Every single one of us needs the forgiveness of our sins. Every single one of us needs our relationship with God to be restored. But we cannot do that ourselves. We cannot bring that about by our own good deeds, by trying to live a good life. Every single one of us is in need of a Savior. And God has provided that Savior in Jesus Christ, who came into the world as a servant, who humbled himself, willing to suffer for our sake willing to take the punishment we deserve in our place. He died upon the cross for our sins. 
And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death, and he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And friends, he will come again to judge everyone. And our only hope on the day of judgment is Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you do not have to fear the day of judgment. But God will welcome you into his kingdom for all of eternity. So friend, if you're not a Christian, we encourage you, we plead with you, Believe in Christ and be saved. You will know peace with God. Your relationship with him will be restored. You will be reconciled to your father. Do not wait another day. Believe in Christ. Be saved. If you are a Christian, then I want to encourage you to meditate on the glorious truth that you have peace with God. And you do not need to fear the day of judgment. You don't need to fear that. And because you don't need to fear that, you have security. You are secure in Christ. Your peace with God is secure. Your future with God is secure because he has secured it for you. Moreover, I want to encourage you to meditate on the great lengths he has gone so that you can have peace with him. Christ was willing to suffer greatly as an innocent servant to reconcile you to God so that you will enjoy peace with God. Understanding and enjoying our peace with God is where we must begin. And as we understand and enjoy our peace with God, we also know and enjoy peace within ourselves. Every single one of us experiences fear and anxiety at different times to varying degrees. Sometimes it may be light and passing. Other times it may be severe and crippling. Whatever the case, we can find comfort in that the Lord knows all of this and has not left us to deal with these things alone. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We all, we will all have tribulation. We will all deal with uncertainty. Difficult things will happen that are completely out of our control. We will have trials and we will experience pain. But in the midst of all this, Jesus desires for us to experience peace through abiding in him. He wants us to find peace in him. Brothers and sisters, do you know that Jesus desires that you will experience his peace even in the midst of tribulation. Life in this world can be very difficult, but Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. When we have anxiety and fear, the Lord wants us to go to him. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we read, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds In Christ Jesus. And don't we all need this? Oh, we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds. Because we are weak, we're frail, we easily give in to fear and anxiety. We need him, we need his help. We need God to guard our hearts and minds with his peace that comes from Christ Jesus. I love how his peace is described as 
surpassing all understanding. And I think the reason that his peace is described as surpassing understanding is because we can have peace in times when we shouldn't. We can have peace when, on all human accounts, we should not have peace. We are able to have his peace by abiding in Jesus even in the midst of trials and tribulation, sorrows and pain. Jerry Bridges writes, Jesus has power over all the universe and he exercises it on our behalf and for our good. In Matthew 10, 29-31, Jesus tells us that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the will of our Father. And even the very hairs of our head are all numbered. No detail is too small that it escapes the Father's attention. And now Jesus, in his ascended glory, exercises that same watchful care on our behalf. Jesus wants you to find peace in him. When you experience fear or anxiety, go to him. And you will find care and comfort, not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, we have peace with God and we are able to have peace within our own hearts and minds. We are also called to live at peace with one another through the finished work of Jesus Christ. One of the biggest challenges to the unity of the church in the first century was the conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Gentile believer, believers meaning people of every other ethnicity besides Jewish and so from the Jews' perspective, there were Jewish people and everyone else. And everyone else fit into that Gentile category. And there was hostility in the culture and the world around them between Jews and Gentiles. There was hatred. There was animosity. And some of that found its way into the church. And Jewish believers and Gentile believers had a hard time knowing how to relate to each other. They had a hard time knowing how to get along and we saw this, for example, in Galatians chapter 2. If you remember in Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounted a time in Antioch when he was there with Peter, and Peter was enjoying close, intimate table fellowship with Gentiles. Now, for the Jews, that would be unacceptable. From their perspective, they would be breaking the laws of Moses. But Peter understood that through the finished work of Christ, they were able to now have that, uh, that fellowship in the and that, 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 uh, that close table fellowship and those barriers had been removed. Yet, while he was there and the circumcision party showed up, he withdrew from having fellowship with these Gentile believers because he feared their judgment. So he's like, ah, oh, I know they, shouldn't, they think I shouldn't be doing this, so he withdrew from, from them. You see, the circumcision party advocated following the ceremonies of the Mosaic law, including circumcision food and special days. And so, in other words, they would have frowned upon Peter's behavior of eating with these Gentiles who hadn't been circumcised. And when they arrived, Peter succumbed to the fear of their judgment and withdrew. And as Paul pointed out, he was being hypocritical. He's like, you, Peter, are giving the impression that our Gentile brothers and sisters need to live like Jews in order for them to be fully included and embraced as believers, yet you, Peter, don't even live like a Jew. Yet in front of this group of people, you are play-acting as if you believe it is necessary to separate from Gentile believers unless they live like Jews. And so there was this conflict, and, and there were these disagreements, and, and there was even some hypocrisy. 
So how was this to be addressed? Well, Paul addressed this very problem in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. In this passage, we're going to see how the cross removes hostility amongst believers. Again, this is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down, uh, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So when you are no longer strangers and aliens... Uh, But you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All people are alienated from God because of sin. Paul was making the point that Gentiles... Again, all non-Jewish people were also alienated from God's people, the people of Israel. There was a dividing wall of hostility between the two. But Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has killed the hostility through his death on the cross so that he reconciles people from all ethnic groups, making one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Jesus has the power to bring peace peace between people who previously hated each other. Now all who believe in him are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And we as his people are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And as those who are being built together into a dwelling for God by the Spirit, we are called to live at peace with one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, we are encouraged to this end in Scripture. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, we are encouraged, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. As followers of Jesus, we are called to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I think it's important for us to recognize the challenges we face as we pursue what makes for uh, peace and mutual upbuilding. We need to be aware of what is taking place in the world around us and the pressures that are being applied to us. In our world today, people are divided in many ways and for many reasons. And the reality is there are many forces at work trying to prevent us from pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. There's the sin in our own hearts. 
Every single one of us is sinful. We have sin in our hearts and we have blind spots. Sin is deceptive. We all have blind spots. And we need the Holy Spirit's help in this regard. We also deal with the reality that others sin against us. There are times when you will be sinned against. And this makes peace difficult. This makes it difficult to pursue what makes for peace. There are the spiritual forces of darkness, spiritual forces of evil, which are at work in this world to try to disrupt the peace that is within the church. The evil, the evil forces want to prevent us from enjoying peace with one another because the enemy knows that God is glorified when we live at peace with one another. And then there are the patterns and the practices of the world. It is easy for us to look at the world and to see how much divisiveness there is in the world, how people hate each other, how people treat each other as enemies. I mean, we're getting constantly bombarded with messages. I mean, we see this, for example, in news media. It seems as though the profit model for news media is to make people angry with those people over there. The better a news organization is at making you angry, the more profit they're going to make. Then there's social media, which rewards aggressive behavior. People get rewarded for strongly denouncing others. And it rewards passive-aggressive behavior as well. Social media doesn't generally help us pursue what makes for peace. We are encouraged to treat those people as enemies, as though they are enemies or they are an ex existential threat to our way of lives. And so we all feel this. We all feel the effects of these different factors and forces, and we all face temptation to give in to the divisive patterns and practices of the world. And brothers and sisters, this is why we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us to help us pursue that which makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us to deal with our own sin. We need the Holy Spirit to help reveal the blind spots in our own hearts and lives and to lead us in the path of repentance from our sin. It is good for us to pray, Lord, help me to see my sin. Cause me to hate my sin and grant me to repent from my sin. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us to that end. We need the Holy Spirit to help us respond when we are sinned against. We will be sinned against. And we need the Holy Spirit's help to respond in a Christ-like way. We need the Holy Spirit to help us discern if it's a Proverbs 19.11 situation or a Matthew 18.15 situation. And here's what I mean by this. In Proverbs 19.11, we read, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So there are times when we need to overlook an offense. And that means overlooking it, not holding on, not being bitter, not being resentful. But there are times when we need to address an offense. Like, Matt, like Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
And so we need the Spirit's help to respond rightly when we are sinned against. And this is one way that we pursue that which makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We need his help in light of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6 and 12, we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The spiritual forces of evil want to tear us apart. And this is a battle that we cannot fight in our own strength. It is not a battle we can fight on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit's help in order to engage in this spiritual battle that we might rightly pursue that which makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We need the Holy Spirit to help us resist the patterns and practices of the world because it's so easy for us to give in. It is so easy for us to just give in to the divisiveness that is all around us. We need the Spirit's help to resist these patterns and practices, to see them for what they are, to see that the risk that they cause to the church. We need the Holy Spirit's help to resist the patterns and practices of the world and to walk in a way that's honoring to Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us, including peace. As we pursue peace, as we pursue that which makes for peace, we need to remember what Christ has done for us. We need to remember the great lengths that he has gone in order to restore our peace with God. And as we reflect on that, as we enjoy that peace, as we know his peace, even within our own hearts, we are enabled and empowered by the Spirit to pursue that which makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Well, Adam and Eve experienced perfect peace in every way before it was lost through sin. And we who have trusted in Jesus look forward to the day when we will enjoy perfect peace with Christ in his kingdom. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that a wonderful future that awaits for us? No more conflict, no more strife, no more enmity, no more anxiety, no more fear. Don't we long for the day when that will be completely and utterly removed? We look forward to the day when we will be in Christ's kingdom for all of eternity, and that peace that we will know will never be taken from us, and it will never be lost. Hopefully, we eagerly look forward to that day. And as we do, as we eagerly await going home to the Lord, we are called to pursue peace now. I want to close with a reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 20, uh, 14 through 21. And here's what we read. Bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Brothers and sisters, may this be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into the world as the servant who suffered for our sake to restore our peace with you. We thank you that we have peace with you because we are justified by faith in Christ. And Father, we pray that we will know your peace within our own hearts and minds. We pray that you will grant that to us where we all face times where we experience fear and anxiety. So we pray that in those moments we will go to you to find comfort, peace, not condemnation. Lord, as we receive peace from you, as we know peace through you, we pray that we will be people who pursue that which makes for peace. We pray that you'll forgive us for those times when we have failed to do so. Pray you'll grant us repentance. And we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.